Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com gps. netsuite.com gps. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you from New York City. Today on the program... The assassination of Japan's former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, shot in broad daylight in a country with almost no gun homicide. We'll explore the murder and his legacy. Then, after a stunning series of resignations from his cabinet, Boris Johnson finally admits it's time to go. I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. But them's the brakes. What happens now? I will ask former top Conservative Party official Camilla Cavendish. Also, Henry Kissinger on Vladimir Putin. The 99-year-old former Secretary of State has met with the Russian leader perhaps more than any other American. As the war in Ukraine continues to rage, what the West and the world needs to know about that man's intentions. And space, the final frontier for international conflict and perhaps even war. I will talk to General John Raymond, Chief of the United States Space Force. But first, here's my take. It's a famous saying that no military plan survives its first contact with the enemy. The greatest theorist on war, the Prussian general Karl von Clausewitz, often explained that strategy must be dynamic, constantly changing and rejuvenating itself. In his famous treatise on war, he wrote that some generals consider only unilateral action, whereas war consists of a continuous interaction of opposites. The West needs to take these lessons to heart in its struggle with Russia and adjust its strategy which is currently in danger of failing. The core of the West strategy has been two-pronged, to provide Ukraine with arms, training, and money, and to impose massive sanctions on Russia. That basic idea still makes sense, but the balance needs to change. It is now clear that the economic war against Russia is not working nearly as well as people thought it would. Vladimir Putin cares less about what these sanctions do to the Russian people than he does about what they do through the Russian state. And thanks to rising energy prices, Bloomberg projects that the Russian government will make 
considerably more revenue from oil and gas than it did before the war, around $285 billion in 2022 compared to $236 billion in 2021. Meanwhile, Europe is facing its worst energy crisis in 50 years. The basic problem with the economic war against Russia, as I've argued before, is that it is toothless because it cannot sanction all Russian energy. The Russian economy is fundamentally an energy economy. Revenues from oil and gas alone make up almost half the government's budget. And unfortunately, the solution would not be for the West to stop buying Russian energy altogether because with less supply on the world's market, it would only drive prices even higher. Having developed a dangerous dependence on Russian energy over the last two decades, Europe cannot quickly change that without plunging into a deep and protracted recession. Look at what is already happening on the continent, where natural gas prices are now 700% higher than they were at the beginning of last year. On July 11th, Nord Stream 1, the pipeline through which Germany gets most of its Russian gas, is scheduled to close for maintenance. It is possible that Putin will decide to punish the West and Germany by not letting it reopen. If so, Germany, Europe's largest economy, will almost certainly go into a recession. Putin's strategy appears to be impose costs on the West and then play for time, assuming that cracks in the coalition against him will grow as economic pain in these countries grows. Western countries are still not treating this challenge as a paramount priority. The Netherlands has a huge gas field, but it is actually slowing down production. Germany still will not reverse its self-defeating phase-out of nuclear energy. The Biden administration is still making it harder to finance long-term investments in natural gas and oil. It also can't seem to find a way to restore the Iran nuclear deal, a move that would bring an enormous influx of new oil supplies onto the world market and almost certainly stabilize the price. I understand there are valid objections and concerns with all these policies, but the priority has to be to defeat Vladimir Putin. Meanwhile, Putin's real vulnerability is on the military front. The Russian army has expanded its control in the Donbass region of Ukraine, but at great cost. Thousands of Russia's soldiers have died, its supplies are dwindling, and most importantly, it is finding it very tough to get new recruits. The Economist reports that the Russian government is having a hard time filling the ranks and is offering new recruits nearly triple the median wage. Russia is suffering heavy losses of military equipment that will be difficult to replace, especially when they require sophisticated technology, almost all of which it used to import from the West and its allies. Recently, Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo revealed that captured Russian equipment is being found to contain computer chips that were taken out of refrigerators and dishwashers. Western leaders should recognize that economic sanctions simply will not work in a time frame that makes any sense. They should try to increase as much of the supply of energy worldwide as they can, but also dial back those sanctions that are clearly causing more pain to the West than to Russia. Meanwhile, they should amp up military support to Ukraine, erring on the side of taking more risks. Freeing up the blockade around Odessa, for example, would be a huge economic win for Ukraine and a shattering symbolic defeat for Russia. Winter is coming. 
Homes in Europe might not have enough heat. Troops in Ukraine will find it much harder to dislodge Russians once the snow blankets the land. Time is not on our side. Go to CNN.com slash Fareed for a link to my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. It was stunning to hear that Japan's former prime minister, Shinzo Abe, had been assassinated. Stunning that this important leader of Japan and key friend of America was dead. Stunning, too, that he was killed by a gun in a country with absolutely stringent gun control and very low gun homicide rates. Abe has been the country's longest tenured PM, serving nine years total in two separate terms. When I interviewed him in 2014, I found him to be direct and frank. I want to bring in Ian Bremmer, the president of the Eurasia Group, who knew Abe for more than a decade uh, pretty well. Uh, Ian, welcome. And first, tell us just what are your thoughts about him as a, as a, as a human being, as a man? What, what kind of a person was he? What struck you most? Uh, charismatic, direct. Uh, he was someone that when you met with him, he was quite warm. Uh, I mean, and and in conversation, he would occasionally touch you on the arm or the shoulder or the back, depending on where you were situated, as making a point, which is almost unheard of um, uh, in Japanese society. I mean, especially when you're talking about official meetings. I remember the first time he did it, I I, I was a little bit stunned. I mean, I don't know if you'd call it, you know, Clintonian back in the day, right? Uh, Or Ronald Reagan-esque. But that's, that's kind of who he was. And this is also a man that you know, had a second chance in politics after his first term ended sort of ignominiously uh, with these health challenges. And that almost never happens in Japan as well. He was, he cut a unique figure uh, politically in the country, as well as uh, having so much more of a platform and a profile for Japan internationally. And almost anyone that knew him well experienced that directly. So he was very well known internationally, as you say, and also within Japan, came from a very Uh, distinguished political family. Um, But he was also kind of controversial, right? He was more uh, more of a nationalist. Um, His opponents would say he was even a militarist because he wanted to he wanted to amend Japan's constitution and allow it to have a proper military. Were those really controversial positions in Japan? Uh, they were somewhat controversial, uh, especially because keep in mind, so Abe had uh, his best relationship in the world was probably with Narendra Modi, which started back when Modi was running Gujarat. They liked each other. Abe thought it was very important to have a stronger union of democracies in the region because personally, he was very, very concerned about the rise of China, more so than any Japanese high-level me- leader I had ever met. When, when you'd mentioned J- China to him, I mean, he would literally, he'd get more stiff. You could see sort of like the the vein in his neck bulging a bit. I mean, he was worried that China was, as it was getting larger, as it was militarizing, it was a direct threat, not just to a country like Taiwan, but also to Japan directly. And that became the beginning of what's today the Quad, which Abe really got started. He's the one that made the Trans-Pacific Partnership really happen, the CPTPP, when Obama couldn't get it done for the United States. And he's the one that wanted to change the country's constitution to help Japan remilitarize and not just focus on national self-defense. 
I mean, those were not uh, unheard of positions in Japan, but he was certainly the most senior and articulate and strongest proponent of those positions, and it made a real difference for Japan on the global stage. What do you think, um, you know, this, this is a, a gun violence which is unheard of in Japan. I mean, they have, you know, we have, whatever, 40, 50,000 gun deaths a year. They have, you know, there are years when they have two or three. Um, what do you think this does to the Japanese psyche? I, I think it's a shock. I think it's a JFK moment for Japan. It's literally that cataclysmic. Uh, the entire 2021 Japan had one violent gun death, non-suicide in the country. The United States, we had 220 last weekend. It's unheard of. Uh, and, and you have to keep in mind that Japan is the most politically stable and the most consolidated of the G7 democracies. It's very homogeneous. It's almost a single party democracy, the Liberal Democratic Party, which uh, Prime Minister Abe uh, was in charge of uh, back in the day. Um, they, they win almost every election, and they're about to again uh, today, uh, because uh, Kishida will, will benefit, the existing, sitting prime minister, from the country coming together. This will not be a moment that disunites or fragments Japanese society. It will be a moment that brings the country closer together. They'll be shocked, but they will also feel as one. I mean, frankly, the last moment we've had like that in the United States I hate to say it, it was probably 9-11. You know, your point about America, you know, I have been thinking, imagine something like this happened in America. Uh, I feel like it would not bring this country together. It would, it would further the divisions. No, and we've seen that, frankly, with the pandemic. Uh, you know, so much red versus blue, masking versus non-masking, vax versus anti-vax. Uh, in Japan last week, even outside, 80% of the population was wearing a mask in 100-degree weather in Tokyo, record-setting. Inside, it was literally everyone, and that's because they, they are focused as a community. There is a civic culture, and even if you don't really like the rules yourself, you care about your neighbor, you care about your countrymen, and so you just kind of go along to get along. And you're right. I mean, if this were to happen in the United States right now, God forbid, you have to imagine that the political outrage would be as deeply divided as the country today feels. Ian Bremer, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for it. From the death of a former prime minister to the downfall of a sitting one. Next on GPS, Boris Johnson bows out as Britain's leader. What is next for the United Kingdom? At Prime Minister's questions in Parliament on Wednesday, Boris Johnson was steadfast. He would not resign, despite a swiftly growing list of resignations by his top officials. A day later, Johnson stepped out of 10 Downing Street and offered his resignation, bringing to a close his three-year tenure at the top, one filled with scandals and some successes. I want to bring in Baroness Camilla Cavendish, who ran Prime Minister David Cameron's policy unit and is now a columnist for the Financial Times. Camilla, welcome. Um, I, I want to ask you first whether at some level this is the, the, the theme of uh, Boris Johnson's career seems to have been enormous political skill and virtuosity, but marked by 
what I suppose one politely would call dissembling. He, he got fired from his first job at the Daily Telegraph for dissembling about a quotation he made up. Uh, he dissembled about Brexit. Lots of the anecdotes and facts he presented were simply not true. He dissembled about Partygate. And now it seems like he dissembled even to his own cabinet about what he knew about this latest uh, controversy. Um, was it that, the, yeah. that people just finally lost, lost the trust in him that you need? Well, he was a revolutionary. And in government, he has never been able to switch from essentially campaigning to governing. And this is really the tragedy of Boris Johnson, actually, is he continued to be interested in headlines and, as you say, to dissemble, mainly um, on sometimes on quite trivial issues and sometimes just to pursue his own agenda. But ultimately, I'm afraid it's all been about him. And that's what happened this week. The penny finally dropped. And it was, funny enough, there was, you know, the issue that was the last straw was the dissembling over a man who uh, appeared to be a sexual predator who had been employed by Johnson, who Johnson knew about. But as you say, this was only one of a very, very long series of things which ministers had had to defend. So many of the people who finally snapped on Monday and Tuesday and went to him and said, you've got to go, were people who have been out on the airwaves for a year defending all sorts of things that then turned out not to be true. And they'd had enough. So looking forward, um, the Conservatives still have a huge majority from 2019. Um, You know, many people point out it would be hard to lose that majority in one election. In other words, the Conservative Party could be looking to another six, seven uh, years of of, uh, ruling. Is there some figure um, who can bring the various factions together, particularly the, you know, the ones that had been so at odds over Brexit? The coalition that Boris Johnson built, um, you're right. The big question for the Conservative Party is, can anyone keep that together? Um, I think really the bigger question is, can the next leader sort of smooth over Britain's relationships with its allies, um, begin to rebuild trust in politics? uh, Because trust in politics has been so damaged by all of these episodes and also trust in some of the institutions. So there are a huge number of candidates who are going to run. There are several big figures. Rishi Sunak, who was the chancellor, has declared uh, that he will stand. Jeremy Hunt, who was health secretary and foreign secretary, ran against Johnson for the leadership and got to the second place last time and has been outside of cabinet. He will also run. And he's interesting because he's not tarnished in any way by the Johnson years. Would it be fair to say that uh, economically the verdict is in? Brexit has been bad for Britain economically, right? I mean, you have terrible uh, in, uh, inflation, which tends to happen because when you have, uh, you know, you have higher, higher costs of goods, higher tariffs because you left the European Union, uh, slowing growth. Uh, it, Britain looks like uh, not quite the sick man of Europe, but certainly the weakest of the major economies. Yes. I mean, for a while, it was hard to disaggregate the effects of the COVID pandemic from the effects of Brexit. Um, I think we can now see exactly as you say that we are way behind in terms of growth. A lot of small businesses are really struggling to export. And we've got to remember that there were various possible versions of Brexit. Boris Johnson chose a very hard Brexit. He chose to leave the single market of the European Union and indeed the customs union. And I think the polls 
in England are showing that the voters are also realizing that this has not been a very good deal for the country. What do you think at the end of the day his legacy is? Look, I think he is a superb politician. He was a household name. People called him Boris. He was a great mayor of London. He has a way with words that he connects with people. Um, his downfall really was that he what is, appears to be a narcissist who even now actually can't accept why people want him to go. And that will really tarnish his legacy. But whatever you think about him, um, he did take Britain out of the EU. And he did create a very, very significant uh, conservative majority. Um, and, you know, those things will, will go down in history. He also led the country through the pandemic. Um, you know, for good or ill, uh, every government had struggled with that. But, but that was a, you know, that was a proper public service. Is, is there any larger lesson in Johnson's fall about populism and what happens to, the, you know, because he was a kind of populist, um, uh, the, you know, when they when, mm. when, when you hit when you have to actually govern? Well, I mean, there are not a lot of analogies are drawn between Boris Johnson and Donald Trump. I don't like to overdo that. Um, I think, you know, he has played some of the same tunes, but and he's been too obsessed with focus groups. And he's sadly been very divisive. In the pandemic, Britain really came together. People looked out for each other. We felt, I think, more connected than we'd been ever since the Brexit referendum. He could have capitalised on that, instead of which he started fighting cultural wars, um, you know, trying to build division against the opposition. And as I said, that's because he was still campaigning. He was been in permanent electioneering mode. And I think the next leader has to be somebody who is much more serious about simply delivering good government for the country. Camilla Cavendish, pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Next on GPS, Kissinger on Putin. The 99-year-old former Secretary of State has met with the Russian leader around 15 times. What the West needs to understand about Putin's mindset. Back in a moment. My next guest, Henry Kissinger, has been a controversial figure since his days as National Security Advisor, then Secretary of State under Richard Nixon. At 99, he is still stirring up controversy with his recent comments about how to end the war in Ukraine. He's the author of the new book, Leadership, Six Studies in World Strategy. It's a terrific book, well worth reading. Henry Kissinger, pleasure to have you on. Glad to be here. So the book is terrific. I've, I've read it and really, really enjoyed it, and I couldn't recommend it more to people. But I'm going to start by talking about a leader who's not profiled in this book. Um, how many times have you met Vladimir Putin? Maybe 15. And these are long, almost always one-on-one -on -one meetings? Yes, always one-on-one. -on -one. And I met Putin for the first time when he was deputy mayor of St. Petersburg. And I had no idea who he was. And he was talking about the then occurring collapse of the Russian Empire, of the Soviet Empire. And he said, this is one of the great tragedies of history because it will create endless trouble and 
new definitions of borders and of influence. But it was just at that time an interesting conversation. So when you think about Putin as a leader, if you were to analyze him in the way that you have analyzed the leaders in this book, what is the thing that strikes you most strongly about Putin? His passionate, almost mystical view of the nature of Russia. He was, is very intelligent, very analytical, quite aloof. But on one occasion he said to me, some days I think I know everything. And other days I think I know nothing. That is not something world leaders would usually say in conversations. But it indicates the inner struggle he was going through in dealing with both the domestic evolution and his perception of the foreign challenges to Russia. When you say, um, you know, he's, he's very analytic, that's also been my experience in the few times I've met him. So what explains what seems, he, he also seems careful. Um, what explains this very bold, almost reckless move in Ukraine? I wouldn't have expected it. I thought when he concentrated the troops around Ukraine, it was for bargaining. And I wouldn't have been surprised if he had taken a slice. But to attack the whole country and try to reincorporate it, you can interpret it in one of two ways. The way it is generally interpreted, I know almost no exception, is that he wanted to reconstruct the empire. But you could also interpret it as a recognition of growing Russian relative weakness that the domestic situation is not evolving very rapidly. And here the West is approaching via Ukraine. And I think that I interpreted it to myself as much as a last act to show that there were limits to what Russia could tolerate. So you, you proposed at Davos that Ukraine uh, make clear that it does not intend to go further than the, the February 24th lines. In other words, that it wanted to reverse Russia's aggression this year, but, but not go further. And that became somewhat controversial. I didn't even address it to the Ukraine. Right. I said a dividing line for ending the war should be the status quo ante. Right. A return to a return the to, February 24th situation. Yeah, but that's still a very substantial retreat. For the Russians. For the Russians. But, but you're saying, I want to be clear, you're saying you do not believe that it will be easy to get the Russians back to those lines. In other words, reversing the aggression of this year. It will be very difficult. But I think it has to be our objective. Because if we settle for whatever 
the situation is when the Russians offer a negotiation and if it acquires thereby all of the Donbass and the stretch along the Black Sea that will be interpreted that in the end NATO could not protect a friendly country. The problem uh, of Ukraine fundamentally is it seems to me that the Ukrainians sort of reject entirely this, what you call the mystical Russian na- narrative, right? They see themselves as firmly part of the West. They want to be a liberal democracy. They want to be, ca- you know, capitalist society. They want to be allied with the West. Can Putin live with that? Well, before the war, I would have said no. And I warned against incorporating Ukraine into NATO 10 years ago and predicted it would lead to some to some sort of conflict. But the solution that I had then, or that I didn't mind, to make Ukraine a bridge between Europe and Russia, it's not possible now. After the destruction of this war and the way it's been conducted and the suddenness of the attack... So now Ukraine, whether formally or not, is part of Europe. And that will be a very hard decision for Putin to make. And it may not be Putin who makes that decision. Or it may not be Putin who survives that decision. Next on GPS, I will ask Henry Kissinger whether January 6th was a bigger deal than Watergate. And we are back here on GPS with more of my interview with Henry Kissinger, the author of the new book, Leadership, Six Studies in World Strategy. Let me ask you finally about uh, one leader you write about, um, Richard Nixon. So when I talked to David Gergen recently, uh, we were talking about leadership, and and I asked him about Nixon. And he said, the lesson I draw from uh, Richard Nixon's experience was he's one of the smartest people ever to have occupied the White House. But he had internal demons. And unless you have dealt with your internal demons, you know, they will, they will in some way come out. Do you agree with that? The Nixon I encountered had a capacity for making extremely courageous decisions and was a great patriot about the purposes of America. But he also was driven by a sense of insecurity in which he found it very difficult to give orders to somebody he knew disagreed with him. So he did have these demons. Where they came from, I don't know. But what I do know and experience is that in the big decisions on which, in my opinion, the security of America depended, he made the right decision. But from what I saw and what he honored me by letting me participate in and help and guide some of it, uh, 
he was a strong president with a big flaw which destroyed him. When you look at what happened on January 6th, it seems bigger than Watergate, or no? Watergate was primarily, I mean, the legal aspect of Watergate was the obstruction of justice, uh, the cover-up. The other things were not a, they were things that could have been accommodated. Uh, January 6th, the attempt to undo a recognized electoral result by a president that was unprecedented and hopefully will never be repeated. When you look forward and you think, um, let's say you're 105, six years from now, um, do you think that, uh, you know, is this an, something like the populism, the attacks on democracy? The, is this a phase? Will we have gotten through it? Or are we spiraling downward? Well, what bothers me is even, say, in the Vietnam period, when I was in Washington, and I thought life was tough, and and it was, but the critics in their majority were believers in the system. They disagreed about the policy and were very passionate about it, and it was not easy. But now the domestic dispute seems to me more about the worthiness of the country itself. And that is a debate that makes it very hard to move from it to a compatible vision of the future. Henry Kissinger, always a pleasure. Next on GPS, I'll interview the man who runs America's newest military branch, the Space Force. General John Raymond will tell us why in space, just as on Earth, the U.S. faces many threats. On December 20th, 2019, then-President Donald Trump signed a defense spending act that included within it a provision to create the country's sixth military branch, the U.S. Space Force. Despite some late-night ribbing about the name of the force, its logo and its uniforms, the force's mission is actually very simple and deadly serious, to protect the United States and allied interests in space. That becomes increasingly important as major tensions dominate U.S. relations with both Russia and China, nations with ever more powerful space programs. I want to welcome the head of the Space Force, General John Raymond, to GPS for an exclusive interview. General, thanks for coming on. Great, sir. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So we know about the tensions on Earth. Uh, We know about the tensions between, you know, with Russia, with China. If we were to look up in space, um, what would we see? Would we see some kind of a mirror image of those tensions that we that we have uh, on Earth? Well, let me just start by saying that, you know, the U.S. has been a spacefaring nation 
since the 1950s. And that status of being a spacefaring nation gives us great advantage. Uh, space underpins all of our instruments of national power, whether it's dip diplomatic, information, military, or economic. And it is uh, a domain of competition, just like all other domains, uh, air, land, and sea. And so as you were to look up in space, you'd see a domain that's changed pretty significantly over the last couple decades, uh, a domain that's become much more congested uh, with uh, the numbers of objects that we're tracking close to 50,000. Um, What's well, just a few years ago, I would have told you it was only about 22,000. Uh, the numbers of satellites that are up in space have gone from about 1,500 a couple years ago to almost 5,000 today. We see increased competition. We see an increased contested nature of the domain. So every now and then you hear about the Russians or the Chinese blowing up a satellite, um, which I've always assumed was a kind of, I don't know, warning or, you know, showing off the capacity to to take down uh, satellites. The U.S. obviously has the most in the world uh, and the most critical ones. How do you read those, those explosions? First of all, I read them as being very reckless and irresponsible behavior. Uh, the, the space domain is a domain for global use, and it provides great opportunity for the, for the nations of the world. And what we have seen is a spectrum of threats that have materialized over the last uh, last decade or so. Everything from reversible jamming uh, of communication satellites and GPS satellites to directed energy threats, think lasers that can blind or, or dazzle satellites, to missiles that can launch from the ground and destroy satellites, which is what you're, uh, you just mentioned. And Russia did that back in uh, uh, this past November. Uh, where they launched a missile and blew up a satellite in low Earth orbit into a little over 1,500 pieces of debris. We're still tracking that debris. We're still warning folks across the globe uh, to to react as a space traffic control for the world, if you will, to make sure that people don't hit that pieces of debris. We we protect the International Space Station along with our, our partners at NASA. And we found that behavior very reckless and very irresponsible. The big new entrant here is, of course, China, um, which is uh, completing a big space station, Tiangong. Tell us about that. and what, what, How would you rate China's uh, space capabilities? Yeah, I, I, they, they've come a long way in a very short period of time. Uh, I would say China is going you know, zero to 60 very, very fast. Uh, it wasn't too long ago that, that they didn't have uh, significant space capabilities, and, and today today they do. And so, God forbid, if, if deterrence were to fail and we were to get into a conflict, and again, our desire is not to. Our desire is to deter that conflict from happening. But if we did, we would be up against an adversary that has the same space capabilities and the same advantages that we currently enjoy. Uh, they use those capabilities to track our ground forces, our maritime forces, our, our air forces, and it's, it's uh, a threat to those forces. General, let me ask you finally what people, uh, you know, I'm sure must ask you all the time. Um, so when we, you're tracking all this stuff out there, um, are you also tracking for whether or not there's any kind of uh, life out there, aliens, weird objects? I, I do. We do not track that specifically. We, we, we're much, much closer, focused much uh, closer to home. Uh, and that's not part of our mission set. We're really focused on making sure that every American and our allies and partners and our joint and coalition forces have the space capabilities they need to, to both fuel our American way of life and to, to fuel our American way of war. 
Good enough. Thank you, sir. Real pleasure to have you on. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I really appreciate the opportunity. A note before we go. Two weeks ago, in the course of a discussion, I said that Israel had not really condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I misspoke. Israel has voted to condemn it at the United Nations. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.